You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. All right, folks, second episode of 2023, we're in it. And uh, episode number 162, my guest is Tara Beth Leach. I know many of you know Tara Beth. She's a pastor, obviously, therefore, also a preacher, a speaker, a writer. One of my favorite communicators, uh, she has a Master of Divinity, something I also have. So I I enjoy kicking around theology with thoughtful pastors, and Tara Beth's one of those. She's written a number of books. You might know her for Emboldened, which was a book all about empowering women in ministry, which is not to be confused with it being exclusively a women's ministry book. It is a book for everybody to understand the dynamics of men and women in ministry and the unique challenges of being a woman in ministry. She most recently wrote Radiant Church. I'm interested in that book because it came out right around COVID as everything's changing and we're all trying to make sense of what do we do, not just in a post-COVID church, but a post-2018 and onward church where so many public Christians that we thought we could count on have fallen for various reasons. And Tara Beth is at Enneagram 6, which is why she's also written in that wonderful series. Many of you know the 40 Days series where you can buy the book, a devotional book on 40 Days of Your Number. She wrote 40 Days of Being a Six. Tara Beth's a pastor. Uh, She's also, I should have mentioned Tara Beth, a podcaster. You're quite a podcast junkie, Tara Beth. You just launched this new podcast called The Pastor's Table, I think, as of the recording of this, you're just a couple of interviews into it. We are. We just, we have eight in the can and we're releasing one at a time. And I never, ever, ever thought I would start a podcast, but here we are. Well, and I had the privilege of being on one of your podcasts and just had so much fun that I thought, I'm going to get you on the MLA show. And uh, let's start with this. So first of all, as I, I'm famous for my convoluted introductions. Welcome to Managing Leadership Anxiety. Thank you for coming on. Steve, thank you so much for having me. Let's get into it, Tara Beth. Uh, as somebody who's grieved myself and helped a lot of people with grief, one of the things that frustrates me, it's the unintended consequence. The person loses a, love, loses a loved one, and then people anxiously try to come and care for the griever, And then the dynamic shifts where it's the griever that ends up having to care for the caregivers. So like people are anxiously saying, call me if you need anything, just let me know what you need. And now the poor griever has to figure out, okay, what do I need? How do I call you? I think that dynamic, unfortunately, also happens in minority and majority culture. So for example, as a white man, oftentimes it's an African-American woman who has to carry the burden of educating me in my ignorance I find the same to be true with men and women in leadership, particularly in church leadership. So I just wanted to throw that to you and get your reaction and then ask you a few specific questions about being a female pastor as as well as a female lead pastor, a female preacher. What's your reaction to that, first of all? Yeah, thank you so much for acknowledging that and seeing that, Steve. You know, I absolutely experienced that as I have been on a journey of grief. Over the last several years, when my dad was diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer at just the age of 64, and then my mom was diagnosed with frontal temporal dementia at the age of 63. And at the same time, I was leading a very complex church as the first female pastor. And, you know, I 
I am quite the transparent leader and vulnerable leader. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm very open. And as you said, the unintended consequences of that, of being very much of an open book leader, of, of sharing uh, some of the heartaches that are going on in my life, a lot of people want to care for, for me, which is wonderful. I've never felt like there wasn't people out there that wanted to carry us through the journey of the last several years of caring for my parents, leaving a church um, in a very tumultuous time. And so some of those unintended consequences are um, without uh, the, the, the well-meaning people realizing it, um, they are putting themselves in a position to, to, to being cared for. And that burden is often on the one who is grieving. And so, you know, just real simple examples, um, you know, text messages. When when my dad was dying and when I was, was leading the church, I would get, and this is no exaggeration, hundreds of messages, uh, direct messages, Facebook messages um, a day that, and I felt like if I don't respond to these people, they won't know that I see them and how grateful I am. And they they won't know that I love them. And and so I was so concerned about how those uh, felt, the people, the very people that were trying to care for me. Um, and, you know, I think you, your bridge is a really interesting one and one that I've never made before. Uh, but that is some of the unintended consequences for those who want to be allies and advocate for um, those who are minorities and uh, women. And, you know, I experienced this. So when I got to uh, Pazna as a church that I pastored, it was the first time in our denomination that a female had pastored a mega church. And it was, um, and at the time I was the youngest female megachurch pastor in the United States. And so because of that, word got out. And a lot of people came out of the woodwork. Um, and, and many of those people, most most of the people had good intent. I don't know if we'll get into it or not, but there were some really, really difficult things that came out of that, that as well. But, you know, a lot of the good intentions were people saying, you know, I want to be there for you. I want to support you. Uh, you know, tell me how I can advocate for you. And at first, you know, my posture was, wow, I'm so grateful. Um, and I would get a lot of messages from people how, you know, they would say something like, um, you know, I, I want to create space for women at my church. Tell me what I need to do. Or I want to create, I want, I want my church to move to becoming egalitarian, or I want to empower women on my staff. Tell me what to do. And there were times where I was a little tempted just to respond and say, read my book, <laughs> because I was so weary of listing it. And in the beginning, I was so excited about it that I would say, oh, my goodness, like, let me let me spend the next hour outlining for you all the ways that you can embolden and empower women in ministry. And then let's hop on a Zoom call and I'm going to coach you and I'm going to help you. Well, the reality is, is I don't have the capacity to do that. And so it does, it, it can become a burden. Um, and, you know, again, you know, I still want to, I still want to, my, my MO is to fall back in the pasture of gratitude. Like, oh, I'm so glad they're asking. I'm so glad you care. And it can be a lot. 
Yeah, I'm just listening to you and I, I think I'm reflecting on my own journey when I stepped into a lead role after being an associate for years. And that was more than I could manage, just navigating the lead role, the new preaching pressure, uh, the, the incredible responsibility you feel when you're the lead pastor. I can also imagine then you, you must feel a social obligation to help people open doors and all of that, but but you're already probably over capacity, I would think. Like you're the first female lead pastor in that denomination and in that size church. That's more precedent than most people could manage, I would think. Yeah. And by the way, it wasn't the first lead female in the denomination, of, but the one of a large church. Um, ah, yes, thank you. Yes, okay. Yeah. Um, yes. But there was there's so many layers that I carried that wasn't mine to carry, Steve. That took me a really, really long time to acknowledge that. And I carried way too much that wasn't mine. You know, for example, I I carried the burden that I was going to screw it up for all the other women. I it, I was terrified. I didn't want to screw it up. If I, I I told myself that I've if I fail, everyone will say, see, this is this is what happens when a female takes a lead. And they'll never repeat it again uh, because, well, this is what happens. And for the first few years, not a day passed that I did not feel and internalize that burden. Um, mm. In addition to feeling like, uh, you know, another burden, feeling like I had to be the spokesperson for what that was not mine to carry. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I fell into it because of, you know, because of going to, to this wonderful church that welcomed me to the table. Um, and because it was public, uh, I felt like I had a responsibility then for all the other women. I, I felt this burden, like kind of this mother burden and maybe a little bit of a hero complex uh, that was unhealthy, a feeling like I had to care for all the other women and I had to pave a way uh, for all of these women. And if I screw it up, I'm going to screw it up for everyone else. And my goodness, first of all, God has freed me from that. Um, it's That's been a long journey. God has freed me from that. that that's not mine to carry. Um, mm. And God has humbled me because who was I to think that I could carry that? A couple of years ago, I had a great privilege of working with some of Christine Kane's executive leaders. Um, you know, we both know Chris and she's just a human dynamo. I mean, and just she a loves remarkable. You. <laughs> she loves oh, she is you a, and your work. She and, and the great Mr. Kane, yes. uh, Nick, who I believe Chris uh, acknowledges as, anyway, she a talks about him as a piece of, of masculine flesh is what she calls him. Thank you for having that on the tip of your tongue. That's it. They're coming on my podcast this, this season and I'm going to introduce Nick that way yes. as a dude. Yes. I can't wait. Um, I had the privilege of working with some of her executive leaders. We did like a four-day retreat. We spent all day together for four days. It was fa they were amazing. Like yes. she attracts incredible leaders. Oh, yeah. They were all, all not surprisingly, they were all women. I want to say that might be the first time in a long time that I've been in a professional context when I'm, where I'm the only man in the room. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean there's any equivalence to when you're the only woman in the room. Mm -hmm. But it was... It was interesting to me because I'll always be majority culture. So it's not always apples to apples. Right. But it was interesting to me how much more energy it took me. And these were very easy people to connect with. These were delightful people. But just how mindful I was really for the first time, I think, in my, I'm just thinking through wow. as this is true, but in, 
They're like, wow, I'm, I'm working harder. I'm checking what I'm saying, how I'm showing up. That must be just a regular reality for you in church circles. Oh, yeah. Where you're the only woman in the room. Absolutely. And that's exactly why when you're in a meeting and there's a woman at the table, she will often frame it or couch something that she's going to say is, I could be wrong. This might be crazy. This is just an idea. We'll just see if this sticks because she is editing every single word that she has to say, because if she is one of the only people, one of the only ones that is a female in that room, she already feels like an imposter and she already is second guessing whether or not she belongs. How many women need to be in the room for that feeling to be reduced enough? I don't imagine it's ever eliminated, but at least where it's not such a dominant issue. Yeah, you know, that's that's an interesting question, Steve. And I don't know that number. Um, I know that you that that one to two women does not make make that shift. If it were if it were a boardroom, yeah. um, I th- yeah. you know I would imagine that it's at least thirty five percent. For me, you know, if it's just yeah. me and one, if I'm in a meeting, um, which still you know the church that I serve, um, you know, our executive team, it's a very small percentage of us are women. Uh, mm-hmm. And when those women are missing, I feel it. It is mm-hmm. it is the moment I walk into that room, I realize, oh, my goodness, I'm the only female today. That's definitely something that as a man it didn't occur to me until I, I, I would be embarrassed to say how late it took me to figure that out. I came out of seminary as an egalitarian, which is unusual in our movement of churches. Yeah. Uh, our movement is getting that way, but... I graduated in the 2001, and it was kind of an anomaly. But that was my conviction, studying scripture. And so I came in 2005 to this church that was already leaning that way. One woman, three or four men on the elder board. Yeah. Uh, We ordained women pastors. But it wasn't until, I want to say like 2016, that we realized if our elder board's not 50-50, it's not going to work. And I remember having to push against some of some really good elders that are like, look, this is just, you know, arbitrarily making sure we have women. And I kept saying, no, that's not what this is. It, watch what changes when half of us are women and half of us are that's men. Right. It will change. And I wish I had learned that lesson earlier because I think I saw myself as an ally. I, I was an ally, but I was surprised that there was still a lot for me to learn and therefore structure as the lead pastor structurally shifts some things. That's absolutely right. And I think that when we keep the focus uh, more on how it's, it's a mission critical issue, how it shifts the mission, it shifts the dynamics rather than an equality, you know, a, a certain number. Um, I think that's how we can move things forward. You know, cause for yeah. me, that's what it's always been about. It's about the mission of God. Yeah. It's about, it's about unleashing the full church uh, to her full potential with women and men partnering together. It's never been about having an equal amount of number, though that would be great, by the way, yeah. because I do believe yeah. that is a picture of the bride of Christ as, as she's intended to be. Um, but it's all about mission for me. Yeah. 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 I'll say the other thing that shifted is when we intentionally made our chair and vice chair women, that was the next shift. Wow. Um, yeah, that was interesting. And then that was my last year as lead pastor. 
And if people knew the benefit of having a woman boss and your other boss be a woman, yes, every, everyone should do it. You you get very cared for as you are transitioning out. That was that was my experience. Yeah, yeah you know, and it's interesting, and this is just a very different angle, Steve. But it, something that's been in fascinating for me to observe is how congregations experience that. So when I was in Pasadena, you know, I was the first female lead pastor. And when I got there, we had a lot of male pastors on staff. And just by attrition and staff moving on, we reached a point where out of 12 pastors, I believe three or four of them were women. Now, here's what's fascinating. The congregation experienced that as because the female was a lead pastor uh, or because the lead pastor was a female, the ways that the congregation experienced that was that we were female heavy. They had never they had never seen um, that kind of move of that many that many women up front and leading. You know, our, our worship pastor was a female. Our pastor formation was a female. And because it was some of the more visible positions alongside of me. Um, a lot of folks experience that as though Terabeth has an agenda. She's trying to make make our staff all female. We need to hire more males. And so it's still so new um, in the imagination for evangelicals that um, even though we know that it's going to take, you know, a, a lot more than just a few to change things, um, it's still very, very difficult yeah, yeah, that's right. I've, I've got two more questions on this topic, and then I'm going to swing wildly over to Enneagram language uh, chatting with you. I'd love to learn about sixes because I feel like that's a real, I don't understand enough about Enneagram sixes. So um, here's my first question, Terry Beth. My, my friend Mandy Smith, I love also Mandy. a female lead pastor. Mandy Mandy's is, an incredible. She's. I have read her book, Vulnerable Pastor, three times. It has meant so yeah. much to me. Um, and she's yeah. just a dear, dear friend. I was so sad when she moved away. Yeah, back to the back motherland. Home, yes. Um, yeah, and I guess I'll give a plug for her book, Unfettered. Yes. Um, also, also essential reading. M- Mandy in in her book, Vulnerable Pastor, and she's also written about it in Christianity Today. She did a beautiful job of going into the unbelievable detail of how much thought she puts into what she's going to wear when she preaches. Yes. Now I will say this. Terabeth, my wife wishes I put more thought into what I'm going to wear. Sometimes <laughs> I look at what I was wearing on Saturday and I'll say, you know what, that'll get me by. And then uh-huh. I just lay it out for Sunday. Um, but as I read Mandy laying out, like she went earring to earring, level of makeup, fitting of clothes, the line between modesty and classy and distracting. And it sounded exhausting to me. Um, I just dressed badly and opened the Bible Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's your reaction to that as a female preacher? Yeah, it's very real. And, you know, some might say, well, that's vanity. But if we didn't, if we didn't present ourselves in the way that people expect, the feedback that we that we get is quite critical. So so here's just, let's just flesh this out a little bit and paint the picture. Yeah. So again, when I was in Pasadena on a Sunday morning, as I would, I, I would preach, I would give the benediction and I would run down the aisles so that I could be on the receiving end as people were coming out. We're, that was one of my favorite things to do was to greet our folks as they were coming out. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I did hear a lot of things about the message. And, um, but the most common thing that I heard as people were exiting was my clothes and my hair and my looks. 
Um, and it actually became quite the topic uh, for some folks to the point. Um, there was one gentleman that once he sent a very lengthy email, very lengthy, um, with examples from different Sundays he pulled from the live stream and then reached out to his brother, who was an image consultant, um, talking about my hair, how my hair was a distraction. And he even went so far as to uh, compare it to gymnasts. So this was while the 2016 Olympics were happening. And he said, you know, just as a gymnast is, is deducted points for her hair being unkept, um, you ought to be aware as well. And so there was, you know, another gentleman, and by the way, isn't it interesting that these were men? There's another gentleman that um, offered to take me to a Nordstrom because he thought I needed to look more like a 40-year-old CEO um, and that I wasn't dressing the part. And so these conversations were not at all uncommon. So it's no wonder that women put so much pressure on themselves. We don't, you know, and Mandy and I have talked so much about this, you know, we can't look too masculine, we can't, or too manly, you know, we can't look too feminine, we can't, you know, look too sexy, we can't, you know, just the list is so long. And the the amount of exhaustion that it takes to think about these things is is unbelievable. I mean, you know, you, you hear a lot of people who are really into time management and, you know, managing time well, and they'll say, you know, what, what you need to do is you just need to have a, a few different pieces of clothing so you don't have to decide. Yeah, one less decision in the day. One less decision in the day. Well, women just don't have that privilege if you're in the public eye, unfortunately. You, you couldn't get away with the Steve Jobs thing of, of never changing what you wear. No, people would notice. Yeah. People would absolutely yeah. notice. Yeah. I've asked this question of any time I've had a woman on or a person of color. What is something as a woman that you would like me to know as a man that maybe I don't know? I love that question. So something that I often want my male colleagues to know is that I simply want to be at the table with them in partnership, that I'm not clawing for them to get out of the way, but to partner, to come alongside, and then for them to come alongside of me. I think sometimes when there's a person in power, they can become insecure that the person who is longing to be at the table is asking for them to give all their power away and to walk away. And that might be the case. Sometimes that is a case. Uh, but genuinely, to my male colleagues, I just want them to know that I want to partner with them and that we're in the same mission. All right, very good. Thanks Thanks for sharing that. And let, let's jump over to your Enneagram wisdom. You, you wrote 40 days of being an Enneagram 6. I'm an Enneagram 3. And I feel like I'm weak on the middle numbers, the five and six. I just don't feel like I understand well. Yeah. I would appreciate if you would just teach me quickly, okay, what is the primary driver of a six? What are some of the fears of a six? Let's start there and, and see where it goes. Yeah, so the primary driver for sixes is, is security. We want to feel safe and secure. And so 
sixes are reacting or moving towards fear. So I'm a, I'm a one-to-one six. And so instead of moving away or running away from my fears, I'm known as a little bit more of a daredevil six. And so because of that, it's, it's not uncommon for me to be wrongly typed as an eight. So, Mm. um, so out of my drive for, for wanting security, um, there's a, there's a strong fear of abandonment or there's a strong fear that, um, that those in authority could potentially disrupt our security. And so we have like a really, really, really interesting relationship with authority sixes. Yeah. Sixes either question all authority, um, and in general, like a six. So, so this is, this is really important, I think, for those in leadership and for preachers to know about sixes. When you are preaching, there are a lot of sixes in there that are watching you that think that you are full of it. Um, they don't trust you. They um, are questioning everything um, that you're saying until they trust you. And that's why they're called loyalists. And so there's, there's a strong distrust until that moment that we realize there's something about this person that we trust. And then, then we're their ride or die. Then we'll go to the wall for them. And so um, that is very much the case for me. And so, you know, in leadership, this, this, this longing for security and reacting against or towards fear um, can really cause a lot of self-doubt. Um, and this is challenging for leaders. And so, for example, for me, one of the biggest growth curves for me as a six as a leader is my go-to is, is to, to want to hear everyone out. And, you know, when we're making this, I want to hear everyone out. And what can end up happening then is I have zero idea what I feel about it, because I just hear this Mm. giant committee of voices. Suzanne Stabile calls it the inner committee, that we have this this ongoing like committee in our head of all the different ways that everybody else might be feeling that. And it's just like this kind of gets stuck in this cul-de-sac in our heads. And so when someone says, well, what do you think? Well, we have no idea because we're so focused on what everyone else thinks. And so the deep work for an Enneagram six is to get in touch with our guts because, you know, we're not in that gut triad. We're in the head triad. We're really in touch with our heads, but we're not in touch with our guts. And so the deep work for me has, has been getting in touch with my body and my gut to know what are my gut instincts, you know, because sometimes when you are in leadership at the end of the day, you are oftentimes, you know, the one that needs to make that call. And I love the way that you talk about that in your book too. Like you, as you talk about that, this gap, you know, with, yeah. with oftentimes as leaders, like so many of us, like we don't know what to do. Yeah. And most of the time, I think. Most of the time we don't know what to do. And this is even more heightened for Enneagram sixes because mm. we're so focused on that committee of, of the ways that everybody else might be feeling. And so, you know, the work for a six is to, to really get in touch because we have those gut instincts. They're there. It's uncovering them and being able to move away from all those voices and being able to listen to our instinct. And I think this is so important 
also because I often talk about is our faith is embodied and that the spirit works in our bodies. And so getting in touch with the, some of those gut instincts is, is the work of listening to the spirit of God. If a six, you describe a six with this loyalty challenge. Yes. They're suspicious, they're skeptical. Some sixes I've even run into are quite cynical yes. at first. Yes. They then flip wildly into not allegiance, but this strong loyalty oh, right yeah. or die. Yep. Where have you seen the six or even yourself flip back out into suspicion again? What's that like? Oh, yeah, that's happened. Um and so for me, this is, this has happened with, with usually with pastors, um, who I, you know, I've served under where something will happen dramatically that will cause me to question it. And when that happens, it's so disorienting because we've been so loyal to that person. We'll go to the wall for them. And then something significant happens um, either it is a personal hurt or either they've done something where their character has um, been tarnished. It is so disorienting because we were so loyal to them that up until that moment, we thought they could do no wrong. And I think this is kind of a dark side of the six is, we, you know, when we get to the point of loyalty, we think we, we place them on this pedestal and when we reach that moment, we're like, oh, you know, they're not that person that I thought they were. It's this this moment of disorientation of what's up, what's down, what's left, what's right, what is happening. Um, very hard and disorienting. So it makes for an interesting segue. I actually hadn't planned this, Tara Beth, but I think this does lead into your current book, Radiant Church. Yeah. You know, you're casting a vision, a post-COVID vision. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I think a post-church two vision yeah. um, of what the church can be. I mean, we are massively, radically losing our credibility. Um, we're, we're plummeting down faster yes. than good people in the trenches can try to keep us going. That's right. Well, what are you seeing in this last year that's encouraging to you in the local church? You know... One of the things that's been most encouraging to me is Gen Z. Okay. Gen Z has this incredible curiosity and hunger for real deep spirituality. So lots of optimism too. Lots of optimism. They do not have yeah. the same baggage that millennials yeah. and Gen X has. Yeah. And I think so many of us that, you know, are surrounded by people who have gone through this deconstruction journey for good reason, I always say, yep. for good That's reason, right. because That's there's, right. there's yep. been a lot of hurt and it, you know, talk about that flip where we're just disoriented, where we, you know, the yeah. church and the leaders and the pastors that we've loved and, you know, the generation that's raised us is, you know, is maybe not what we thought it was. Um, that that disorient so that's that deconstruction that's happening is is for good reason. Gen Z, I mean, it's like they just you know are waking up to the church and it's fresh and it's new and they're hungry and they're not as skeptical. So I've had the opportunity to um, 
travel at a number of college campuses over this last year. And then I even spoke at, this was crazy, my home church, my son's junior high camp. I have not spoken to student ministry in forever, so 150 junior hires. And you know what's so interesting, Steve, is I spoke at this junior high camp the week of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Right. So I, I log into my Twitter and it is just a, it is just a storm of just polarization and everybody's angry. And then I turned around and I'm looking at 150 junior hires just worshiping and singing and seeking the face of Jesus. And then they go into small group time and they're asking really big and hard questions. And then this, you know, last winter I I was at uh, several different college campuses and the questions that the students are asking and the ways that they're leaning in, I have nothing but hope for the future of the church. Nothing but hope because of this emerging generation. I love that answer. I'm so glad I asked you. I, I'm the father of three uh, Gen Z, as, as I'd call them. And uh, I'm reflecting on Andrew, my middle child, just went to college. He just finished his first semester as a freshman. And the first thing he did, and I think in his mind, the most important thing he did was find a local church. Yeah. I think he was volunteering within yep. 10 days, mm-hmm. maybe two weeks. Yeah. And he's probably there 10 hours a week serving and, and loving it. And um, my oldest son, who's uh, a senior in college, same story. Yeah, I, I think you're right on. And they love they love the local church. And it's beyond being a preacher's kid. There's something more in them. There's something than just, more. They're really... Yeah, having been dragged to church. And I see it with my own kids. You know, I have, I have two boys who are 10 and 12 years old. And I've never had to say you're going to church because you're a pastor's... Like, they wake up and they're excited to go because they right. know that they're yeah. loved. And, you know, last night we were doing our dinnertime um, devotions and we were reading through Genesis 1. And the questions my 12-year-old was asking um, were just unbelievable and amazing and curious. And, you know, thank goodness we're talking about creation. My husband works for NASA. And so thank goodness, like, we had a scientist at the table. (laughs) (laughs) I I was like, babe, I'll handle handle the theology and you can handle the science. But I just had so much hope because... You know, he wasn't taking everything at face value, but he was digging in and he was questioning and he was wondering about things that I don't know that I wondered. And, you know, I wrote this book emboldened and I remember one time they asked like, well, why did you have to write that? I hope that they always wonder that. Um, They just do not have the same kind of baggage that that we have. And I think there's something about that we need to pay attention to. And we shouldn't project it onto them either. I think that we got to be because I think sometimes that we as leaders assume that all young people have these wounds that so many millennials have. We got to be careful not to project that onto them. All right, folks, 2023, I've been banging this gong for two years, so I'm going to hit it once and move on. Uh, 2023 will not be different if you don't do anything different. Uh, We don't learn by listening and reading. So listening to podcasts, I'm a podcast junkie. I love listening to podcasts, but if all I do is listen, I won't change. If all I do is read a book, I won't change. It has to be embodied. You have to go try things. You have to have a community to debrief with. And there are a number of resources out there. So let me just end with this. If you want to go to capablelife.me, that's what we do. We help you 
learn something, go try it out, do self-assessments, reflect and embody a new way of being. We do it through our journal, our book. We do it through a video curriculum. We have monthly Zooms. CapableLife.me, if you're looking for a path so that this year can be different because what's going on is you have things inside yourself that really need to be mined and figured out. And again, hey, I think all my listeners know this. I am not even close to the only person that offers resources to help you with this. And so you can find them. I guess my challenge to you this year is when are you going to actually try to do something different? And if we can help you, we'd love to. CapableLife.me. Now, Tara Beth, uh, I've seen you quivering, possibly in fear, possibly in excitement. It's never easy to tell. But if you brace yourself like a woman as I present (laughs) you the 2023 gauntlet of anxiety questions. Yep. All right. Question number one. Is there a situation that gets you to the end of yourself faster than another situation? So in my life, when my staff are at conflict with each other, when two people are in relational conflict with each other, that will get me to the end of myself faster than anything else. What would you say? Yeah, you know, that as a leader, that is one of the things that I spend the most time on is managing conflict. Uh, and so I, I would have to agree with you on that one. A couple of weeks ago, I came home from the office and my husband said, said, what did you do all day? I said, honestly, I spend most of my time helping people get along. And it's long and hard and exhausting work. And so I think for me specifically with that is when someone comes to me to complain about someone else and that other person comes to me to complain about that and they're not talking to each other. Um, And so just getting them at a table to talk to each other is a lot of what I do. All right. Uh, When you're the last to know that you're not okay, so this is often common, right? Like oftentimes we actually don't know we're not well and it takes others in our life to help us know that, maybe a spouse or a friend. What what tells are you giving that you, maybe Jeff or your friends can say, ah, oh, Tara Beth's not well. What are, what are the signs? Oh, yeah. I go into a cave. I pull back. And so the people that are closest to me, if they don't hear from me, or my husband, if I shut down, um, if I stop responding in a conversation, or if I don't have the emotional capacity to engage, they know that that's when I'm not well. Wonderful. We all have a family of origin, Tara Beth, and that means that we've inherited assets and liabilities from our family of Mm -hmm. origin. I wonder if you'd be willing to name one asset and one liability that you've inherited from your family of origin. Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in a household where um, my father was a rager and oftentimes that was um, brought on because he was a workaholic. And so he would work all week and then he would come home and he would rage. And a lot of that drive to workaholism was this, this drive to perfection of of work being excellent, of um, everything appearing to be excellent um, from the outside looking in. And in therapy, um, we spent a lot of time killing the monster of success. And so um, that same drive, I think that without self-awareness and without friends and family, I would be a workaholic. Okay. How about an asset that comes to mind? Yeah. Generosity. 
Yeah. So my dad was a larger than life person as well. And so he had this ability to, um, to make everyone feel like they're the most important person in the world when he was with them. And I think that is something that, and I think he, you know, I think he could have made a good pastor for that. Hmm. I, and I think that Hmm. I've carried that with me. Hmm. Okay. All right. When we look at God's traits and God's posture toward us, we see that God is kind and loving and therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and so on. We then listen to the inner critic in our own head and we find ourselves very harsh to ourselves. I wonder if you'd be willing to fill in the blank, Tara Beth. Mm -hmm. Here's the sentence. What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? What might the blank be for you? Kind. Yeah, I'm not often, that inner critic um, is strong. And a lot of that, again, it goes back to the family of origin of, you know, that if, if we're, if we're not working hard, then we're lazy. Um, if we're not exercising, you know, then, then we're lazy, we're unhealthy or we're fat. I mean, just all of those voices still from my childhood, you know, so that work of reparenting has been so important and even allowing God in that reparenting process. Um, Hmm. and so of, of relearning to hear the, 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 the voice of God and God's kindness and, and then that reparenting process to myself, that of learning how to be kind to myself. And, you know, so just one more quick little thing is, you know, when I started therapy, I would often say, what's wrong with me? And I've stopped, I've stopped saying that because that's not a kind question to ask to myself. Mm. Mm. Okay. Last, last question. This is great. Um, tell us a time recently where you have felt fully and completely loved. That's such a great question. You know, it's my husband. And so, so I have, I, I have a great relationship with Jeff. We've been married for 16 years and he has this incredible gift of being able to see me. And there was a time not too long ago when I had a really, really emotionally exhausting week and a really, really um, just difficult time at work. And I was anxious and it was hard. And my favorite meal, my favorite meal is chicken tiki masala. And I came home and I walked in the door and the whole house, I mean, just the aroma of chicken tiki masala and the garlic naan bread just filled, permeated my nostrils. And I walked in and there he was making a very complicated recipe and I just saw him and I knew, I knew exactly why he was doing that. And I just saw him. I just started to cry mm-hmm. and he came over and wrapped his arms around me and I felt so seen. Um, and I felt seen by God and the ways that my husband saw me and took care of me and loved me in that moment. Uh, Tara Beth, um, to my great chagrin, you have sailed through the gauntlet. I'm usually not comfortable unless my guests are squirming and tears in a corner, <laughs> but there you are. Thank you so much. That was that was wonderful. And for my listeners who may not be familiar with your work, terabethleach.com, uh, which is also the pathway where you can follow Terabeth on Twitter and, and the socials, Instagram. 
But I, I think what you've discovered in, in this interview is why so many of us are listening to Tara Beth. Because she just, it's not just what she says, but the, the level of thoughtfulness behind it and obviously the deep work that she's done, Tara Beth. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me, Steve. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 